Jesus talks so much about unity, right? And unity being so key and the world coming to know him through unity. So when we recognize that kingdom ministry needs to be our first and foremost priority, then our paradigm shifts to say, oh, you know that church that has been around for a hundred years that may have a building that I would love to have, but they're dying and we're double their size and there's all, hey, they, they we're actually on the same team. Well, hey, it's Jason here, and I want to welcome you to another episode of the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. Today, we have the privilege of sitting down with our friend Daniel M. Now, if you don't know Daniel already, Daniel M. is the Senior Associate Pastor at Beulah Alliance Church in Edmonton, Alberta. He works with the Senior Pastor, Keith Taylor there. He's the author of several books, including his most recent one, You Are What You Do, and Six Other Lies About Work, Life, and love. He's also the co-author of the book Planting Missional Churches with Ed Stetzer. He's the co-host of the New Churches Q&A podcast and the In-Between podcast, which he hosts with his wife, Christina. He's an incredible resource, and I love the conversation we had today. Before we jump into today's conversation, I want to say a huge thank you to our partners for making all of this possible. Our partners invest in this podcast because they love the local church across Canada, and they really want leaders like you to be encouraged and supported in the work that you're doing every day. And today's episode in particular is possible because of the team at Compassion Canada and Briarcrest. And I'll tell you a bit more about how both those organizations are adapting in the midst of COVID to continue to serve the church here and bring transformation to the world. Okay, with all that said, enjoy today's interview with Daniel M. Well, hey, Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today from Edmonton. How are you doing over there? Hey, it's great to be with you, and there's no snow on the ground, so <laughs> it's a win. How it's many days melted. a year? How many days a year is there no snow in Edmonton? Is it more than twenty or less than twenty? <laughs> you know, it's how many months without snow? <laughs> <laughs> so actually, well, over lunch today, we were talking about that, and, and I think there's been snow every month of the year, but I don't know. <laughs> That's crazy. I love it. I love it. Well, hey, man, I'm so excited for this conversation. A lot of things I want to chat about. If you're willing, I want to chat about mm-hmm. what Beulah's doing in the midst of COVID. I want to talk about becoming like a multiplying church and leadership pipelines and evangelism. And I want to talk about your most recent book. Um, but before we jump into all that, I'm just wondering if you could just tell us a bit about your story. Like, I know that your story begins, I think, in Canada, and yeah. it takes you all over the world and now back to Canada, and it's so compelling. So I just want to hear a little bit about that journey. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so born and raised in Vancouver, where you're at, so I'm forever a Canucks fan. I know I'm living in Edmonton, so I'm che- I'm cheering for the Oilers too now. But first and foremost, it's always the Canucks. That's a really good in- missional in uh, what, you know incar- <laughs> incarnational ministry. I think that's what yeah. that's called. Yeah, unless the Canucks are playing the Oilers, then it's always Canucks. But <laughs> other than that, I'll go for the Oilers. Uh, so yeah, born and raised there. Actually, met my wife on a mission trip when I was at UBC. So we were both a part of Campus Crusade for Christ when it was called then that it's now called Power to Change. So we were part of that ministry and and met on a mission trip, and that was actually the mission trip. It was in China where we uh, where I discerned a call to ministry because I was at wow. UBC doing sciences, and that was really I since the fifth grade I, I wanted to be a doctor and was really the trajectory that I was moving toward. But that's where I discerned that call to ministry hmm. shifted. Ended up moving to Ottawa, transferring schools because uh, I started dating Christina after the mission trip. And I didn't want to do the whole, I mean, long distance sucks. So (laughs) did that for a year and then transferred to the University of Ottawa into religious studies. And actually that's where I first really got into church planting. So the church Mm. that I interned at was a church plant. Uh, We then moved to Montreal. That was a church plant as well. Helped them go, um, was a small part of them going multi-site and and doing that. Then moved to Korea for a couple of years, uh, part of a kind of a 50,000 person church there doing multi-site. Pause pause for a moment. Sometimes (laughs) just how many people at the church in Korea? Like it, I mean, Mega churches in Korea are like a dime a dozen, right? So this was right. the church was fifty thousand people, fifty thousand, wow. yeah. Wow. So and I was I was leading a multi-site um, youth ministry with on okay. the English side of things. So to give you context, I mean the English congregation was uh, what three thousand or so people. Okay, uh, and then it was um, I was doing leadership development for uh, the English congregation and also doing multi-site 
uh, the youth ministry, leading a couple of youth ministries. And what that connected way too. you from your context here in Canada to the church in Korea? Uh, actually, my youth pastor in Vancouver was uh, the lead pastor out there on the English wow. side. So he's the one that invited us out. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. So then uh, had our first, had our eldest there, and then we ended up moving back to Canada, which is a whole story in and of itself of how God has so shaped us in and through that period and actually went to Edmonton. So we were in Edmonton Mm -hmm. 2010 to the end of 2014 at Beulah, where I'm serving right now. We were here. I was doing adult ministries, groups, uh, helping them with some multi-site stuff, and then ended up moving to Nashville. And I was in Nashville for the last five years, leading multi-site multiplication, the church planning initiative, basically, out of Lifeway that's still going. I'm still doing their podcast. It's called New Churches, newchurches.com. So uh, I, I basically created that with Ed Stetzer, Eric Geiger, Todd Adkins. That was kind of the, the cohort of guys that brought me in. And yeah, I mean, literally been doing that the last five years and basically sensed a calling from God to move back to Edmonton. And yeah, so... When I hear about all those places you've been and building a family along the way, I think if I can just say this almost selfishly, I'm just so grateful Mm. with all of your experience and all the places you've been that God's taking you, the people you've been able to work alongside who Mm. I admire and been shaped by. I'm just so thrilled you came back to Canada, man, that you made it back (laughs) here. And can you tell me just a little bit, I would love to chat about each stage of the journey, Mm -hmm. but I don't want to miss the opportunity just to say, talk about what brought you back to Edmonton and the work that you're doing at Beulah and just Mm -hmm. the, the moment that Beulah's church is in right now, which yeah. is a great church. Most people across Canada would be familiar with Beulah Alliance Church and Keith Taylor's the pastor. Just incredible legacy. Um, give us a window into what brought you here and kind of the moment you're in as a church. Yeah. So I never thought we would be back in Edmonton. We absolutely loved life in Nashville. We now, having said that, there before coming back, there were two distinct calls and mm-hmm. call to uh, very distinct calls that I felt God give to uh, myself and also Christina. Number one was a call to ministry, uh, distinct moment around that. The mm-hmm. number, the, the second thing was actually a call to Canada. And that was something that really Christina and I were wrestling with as our we were like, do we go overseas, do international missions, this? So it was very much a call to the local church and a call to Canada when a lot of our friends joined Power to Change staff and, and there's a lot of that that happened. So having said that, we moved down to the States even in, in, in spite of that, because we sensed God open the door for us to go, we didn't necessarily know what that looked like mm. or how long we were going to be in the States for, but I, I didn't necessarily put aside my call to Canada. In a sense, I kind of thought, hey, Lifeway being like the world's largest Christian resource provider, hey, the, as a Canadian, I was always like, man, books don't talk about Canada and you know, resources aren't thought about for Canada. And what about shipping? And what about all this stuff? So I was like, maybe I'll just go down and like be all about Canada down there. And it's cool how I was able to shape ministry in and around mm-hmm. that. But I didn't fully know what that looked like. And I didn't think us moving to the States was going to be a permanent long-term thing. I just didn't think it was going to be five years. Mm. So we were there. I mean, I was doing that. I was also, I was blessed. And and like you, Jason, I was blessed to be able to serve the Capital C Church. Yeah. Uh, but I loved, I absolutely loved the fact that I was also serving my local church as a teaching pastor. And I was preaching about every other week. And there are some people who literally were like, dude, you got the dream job. You're serving the Big C Church, you're speaking, you're writing, you're consulting, you're traveling, and you're like preaching at your local church, and you don't have to go to any meetings at the church. Like, you know, literally all I did was I led my life group and with my wife, and I preached every other week. Like, that's that's it. I didn't have to do anything else. And they were like, dude, what? That is the dream job. And we loved our neighbors and our, our, our group and just everything yeah. about our life in Nashville. It was just perfect. And we just got our green cards too. So having said all of that, right, that was November 2018, actually. It's crazy to think about. Um, 
2018 no i i've i have my years all mixed up right now <laughs> i don't so, even a year it, a year during, and a half ago yeah during covid days of the week it's all out the window you yeah. know yeah. it's hard to when you're a pastor and you're recording sometimes on thursdays not on sunday everything's disorienting it's so true, don't worry it's about true. It. who even knows yeah. what year it is We're so good. a year a year and a half ago right so i think it's november 2018 and we just got our green cards and we sensed God begin to unsettle our hearts. Hmm. We didn't know why. We didn't have that answer. And, and there was really no real answer for us to, or reason for us to leave. There was nothing about that. But there's this unsettledness that happened in our hearts. And then mm-hmm. a couple months later, so January 2019, I came up to Beulah and it was planned about a year before I was going to lead a staff retreat and preach on the weekends. And then that's where uh, Keith, the lead pastor here, basically said, would you pray about coming back? And would you pray about doing succession with me? And so that's where it was like, a, what? Uh, no, that wow. wasn't in the plan. <laughs> and I had even wrestled with, am I even called? Like, I don't even want to be a lead pastor. I was like, I've, right. I've, never, I've never been a lead pastor. And, you know, I'm there's an opportunity here to lead, you know, one of Canada's largest churches. And I was like, that's not even... That's not even something I want to do. I literally loved what I was doing and I saw yeah. myself as a number two person. And there's a lot of reasons in and around that if you want to go there. But but basically, I, I committed it to prayer. We surrendered it to God and in the whole process and really submitted to the elders doing their due diligence and who the next what the next profile would look like for the next lead pastor and just really submitted to that entire process. Because we, we weren't sure. Like, we weren't even convinced. We were right. like, I don't even know. And then in April, uh, Palm Sunday last year is when Christina and I came up and candidated and preached. And that's mm. when God just broke our hearts for Edmonton. And yeah. he just broke our hearts for Beulah. And it was the first time I ever felt called to a city. Now, I've prayed that God would call us to Vancouver. <laughs> and uh, I my heart breaks for Vancouver in a different way because it's my hometown. But... God really just opened our hearts to, no, Edmonton is a mission mm. field. You are coming back as missionaries. And that that's really, honestly, yeah, opportunity this, opportunity that, all of that aside, we God because God just broke our hearts and 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 it really felt like it was the Eli- Elisha moment where he burned up his oxen, cut down his cart, mm. and just gave it all up. Like that's really how we sensed yeah. the Spirit was leading us um, in this transition. So, after that, I mean, the rest is history. We we moved here in August 2019. Wow. And you mentioned that you you came as part of a succession conversation. And mm-hmm, I think it's worth mm-hmm. parking there for a little bit because just be, just practically where where the, the workforce is in Canada, particularly lead pastors of churches, most of them are baby boomers who are approaching retirement. That might not mm-hmm. be next year, could be a decade from now mm-hmm. and everything in between. But this is, I think, a conversation that the church in Canada has to be having mm-hmm. um, about healthy succession. And I just would love for you just to tell us a little bit about the process or maybe what you're learning in this time that could help just... Um, just animate the conversation that other people are already having and thinking about when it comes to succession in a local church. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing is it's it's not my church. It's not your church. It's not who, the legacy pastor or the founding pastor's church, right? I mean, this is the bride of Christ first and foremost. So as much as God has broken my heart for Edmonton and for Beulah, and I mean, Keith is, I mean, he has, I think, three or four generations tied into Beulah, into its 99-year hmm. history, right? And I mean, if anyone can say this is my church, I mean, the guy could say it. I mean, the guy, <laughs> it's it's incredible how God has used him to impact thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people through his ministry, his faithful ministry here. But I think honestly, in and through this entire process, it's really a submission to say, hey, I mean, this is the bride of Christ. And if we are praying that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done, and if the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few, then we need to just come to a realization that, yeah, who, who Keith has been entrusted to steward this congregation for the last 29 years, Right, and I and as this baton passing happens, and I pray that I'm going for 29, 30 years as well, like him. Right, I just pray that 
that the church continues to multiply and whoever, unless Jesus comes back first, right? That whoever else I then pass the baton on to next, that that ministry, that faithful kingdom gospel ministry would continue to grow so that the lost would come to know uh, Jesus here in Edmonton. I love that. Love that so much. Any best practices, you guys are in the middle of it. So it's still Mm -hmm. like, it's like a, it's an experiment in some ways, but I think that sometimes the best learnings that we can get right now are in the middle of it. Um, What this might be an awkward question for you to answer, but what are some things that you think Beulah is doing right in the midst of this transition? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there's, there's, you're right. We are in the middle of it and mis- there's mistakes and good things. And there's all that in, in the mess. Cause we're all trying to figure it out. And then you had a global pandemic into yeah, it, it all and, and that, <laughs> no, but as I was, as I was praying about the coming back, right. And as we were discerning all of it, uh, I got advice from Eric Geiger and he had just left Lifeway and gone over to Mariners in Southern California. And he was, he had just gone through the succession process. So, I mean, the guy's brilliant. He is such a brilliant leader. And here's what he said to me. He was like, Hey, before you go, you need to make sure that you're the guy. Hmm. You need to make sure that you know it. Keith and the elders, everyone needs to make sure that they know that you're the guy. Because the last thing that you want to do is go there and try to earn it Hmm. because that is anti-gospel. Instead of going and trying to earn your identity or earn your position or earn acceptance or earn this by your good works and by your whatever. And he was like, but Daniel, you could probably do it because you're an achiever and you can do this and do that. But dude, that that's the wrong motivation. Wow. You can't be doing what you're doing there in leading to earn something. You need to go having been accepted, knowing that that is your calling knowing that that's what's going to happen and then just live out in light of the fact that you have been accepted and that is that is your identity and i think that mm. honestly the past is the best predictor of the future unless there's conscious uh change henry cloud talks about that a lot quite a bit and another piece uh, another piece in all of that is we've seen so many succession fails and there's this myth of the scapegoat as being, mm-hmm. hey, anyone, you'd be stupid to follow a legacy pastor or a founding pastor uh, because you, the next guy is a scapegoat. And when you look at the best practices um, of all the times that it's successfully happened, that's a pattern, right? In the mm-hmm. sense that there's confirmation and affirmation before uh, the, the person comes. But the other, the other piece of it is that there's full-on agreement and endorsement and there's an overlap there's an overlap. So in and through the entire process, I mean, literally, I, I was like, hey, guys, I can't come here. And I was sharing this with the Board of Elders. I was like, I can't come if I feel like you, like it's the, what America's got talent and you, I have three X's over my head and I, you're just waiting to X. Because oh, I was like, I'm going to mess up. Yeah. I am not going to be as good of a preacher as Keith because he has so many more reps than me, and he is an incredible preacher. I am not yeah. going to lead as well as him. I mean, the guy is an incredible leader and consensus builder, and I have learned so much from him and wording. And like, the guy is brilliant. I love him to death. And I was like, you cannot compare me to him because I am going to fail. But what I need to know is that you sense that God is saying, yes, this is the guy. Mm. And if I mess up, not if I, when I mess up, that you're going to be, you're going to have my back and help me grow and get better. So that's, I, I feel like that real, the elders really took that to heart. And, and wow. I think that's been a huge, a huge thing for me internally, but I think for the culture as well. Yeah, that's so helpful. That's so helpful. Wondering if we could chat a little bit about church multiplication and church planting, you know, mm-hmm. hearing your story, you've been part of church plants, been part of multi-site. And then at Lifeway, you were able to uh, teach practically, but also connect with the research. And yeah, you're part yeah. of the new churches podcast, which releases content. Is it twice a week that you guys release yeah, twice content? A week. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's just incredibly practical, bite-sized questions, primarily around themes of church multiplication, uh, church planning. Um, if you've got a room full of church planners in Canada, What's some of the stuff that you want to make sure they're thinking about as they approach church planning? Let's imagine first a non-COVID-19 scenario, (laughs) and then let's circle back to unique advice if you're planting in the midst of um, a pandemic. But let's just just park that. Mm. When you look at the Canadian landscape and you're Mm. thinking about church planners, what's some of the stuff that you're saying? You've got to be asking these questions or thinking about these. 
Yeah. So we are wrapped up. So I don't, not the pandemic side of things, but we are wrapped up in a celebrity culture. And we are wrapped up in this Instagram and, and for anyone planting a church right now to not, <laughs> to not, to not admit that side of things is, I mean, you're just tricking yourself really or fooling yourself, but we are enwrapped in this, in, in kind of the antithesis of what Eugene Peterson's life was about. So, I mean, number one, read Eugene Peter. You may not agree with everything, but read the guy for um, for the for the rudeness that you receive as you sit with him in his books, mm. um, of the groundedness and that earthy spirituality that he talks so much about, I think that's that's so important that we are aware of and that we learn from this sage, one of the sages about. So that's on the first and foremost side of things. I think the other side is the Les- read as much Leslie Newbegin as you can, because C- Canada is a missions context, is a context mm. for missions. So for you to understand that the gospel ministry that you are doing is um, is is you being a sign instrument and a foretaste of the kingdom of God, like literally everything that you do as a church plant, it's kingdom activity. Church wow. is not kingdom. Kingdom is not church. But it, it's it's you need to. Everything that you do needs to be a sign pointing to the kingdom. The ministry that you're doing needs to, you need to see yourself as an instrument of the kingdom. And you need to give everyone in this post-Christian context a foretaste of the kingdom because that's it, that is, that's the thing that's going to lead them to Jesus. It's mm. not your tactics or your, your story, Instagram stories or this, that, or the other, or, or even uh, how good you are at community because that in and of itself is going to, I mean, you can't build your everything off of that because... You have, people are messed up, right? I mean, there's mm. going to be mistakes. People are going to get hurt and you can't build the whole thing off of that. It really needs to be a foretaste, right? It's a foretaste mm. of the kingdom. And when we, when we, when we build our ministries off of this idea that, that we are, we are part of this kingdom ministry, then we can recognize that, Hey, I do not have rights. <laughs> I do not have uh, the right over this neighborhood, and I don't have the right over the gospel or over preaching the gospel or doing ministry. And I think we need to be so cognizant of that. Jesus talks so much about unity, right? And unity being so key and the world coming to know him through unity. So when we recognize that kingdom ministry needs to be our first and foremost priority, then our paradigm shifts to say, oh, you know that church? that has been around for a hundred years that may have a building that I would love to have, but they're dying and we're double their size. And there's all, Hey, they, they we're actually on the same team. Wow. Hey, that two years later. Yeah. You're the new guy, but two years later, when the newer guy comes and plants a church, you sending a team to help them, it would be actually your first response mm. when you think of, when you think of yourself as being a part of this kingdom ministry, think of yourself as being a part of um, this this tradition and this history of, in that context, faithful gospel workers and missionaries having been sent, you are just a part of that story. And then after you, there's going to be even more of that. When we get out of our high horse and say, okay, yeah, you know what? I don't have the right over this and I, it's not mine to own this church and this plant, this ministry, it's not mine to own. I'm a temporary steward a temporary steward of it, then I think God can begin to work and collaboration is actually a lot more achievable and we can mm. see uh, more kingdom ministry happening because it's not it's not just about me and it's not just about my newest, coolest thing because that's going to fade away. Right. <laughs> Someone newer and cooler and younger is going to come eventually. Yeah. Man, I'm really impacted by your response to that question because I know just how practical, I've listened to your content before, you know, you really have expertise and experience to kind of go through how to make it sustainable budget, uh, Mark, you could, you know, all those things, but the fact that you just made it about that, that bigger kingdom perspective, Mm, I think that's mm -hmm. really challenging for me in a good way. Um, and I wonder if that's a real natural distraction for planters or any church leader right now, whether it's a new site, new campus, new ministry, just try to think like, how do I make this sustainable? How do I grow? Yeah, and that can yeah. be really an insulating view. Um, but to think about the city that you're entering into, the space you're in, in, into, and how can I be a kingdom win? Yeah. Man, that just really strikes me. And I, I just, yeah, why, why, is that, why is that your response when you think about that question? I think it's um, partially because I'm, I'm, so on the Enneagram, I'm a three. 
and I'm an achiever and I love metrics and there's so much of that that I strive toward and I and it just kind of that's part of who I am. It really disappoints and you really do set yourself up for disappointment when you try mm. to make your identity completely off of that. Wow. And yeah, you we can start our plant off by saying, yeah, we're going to multiply in a year. But if that doesn't happen, is that your fault? If that doesn't happen, is that because Jesus wasn't faithful? I've really wrestled in my life this notion of a timeline of ministry. And about 10 years ago, I mean, I had my life entirely planned out until I was like 80. I don't know why I didn't plan beyond 80, but I mean, I had the entire thing planned out and it was literally the world's best plan. And, you know, there's... I it's completely in the garbage. Mm. And I'm so grateful for that because if I really did stick to that, there's no way I would have ever thought or imagined I would have experienced all that I've experienced and served in the capacities that I have up until this point. I, I never would have planned any of this, mm. right? Because my, my mind is so small and my outlook and my perspective on life and ministry is so small compared to God's kingdom timeline and his ministry so I think part of it is, yeah, let's read, let's plan, let's multiply, let's work on all the stuff that we need to work on to grow to sustainability. But ultimately, we need to surrender it because <laughs> your identity cannot be based off of how big your church is or how much it multiplies or any of that, because ultimately then that means you're serving an idol and you're not serving Jesus. Mm. And sometimes church plants can be our idols. Ministry can be our idol. And that's when, when, our, when our identity is not placed in Jesus and it's placed in these idols, that's when we end up turning to alcohol and to porn and to addictions and to sex and to this. And all of these other, all of these vices that we have seen left, right, and mm. center, Christian leaders that you and I have looked so much up to mm-hmm. fall. And you're like, how in the world did that guy do that? Like, maybe I could have guessed it with that guy, but how in the world about that guy, right? And we're just... It's because they're, what, what was their identity rooted in? Was it getting mm. on the outreach 100 list? Was it getting on, you know what I'm talking about? Was it living yeah. up? Yeah. So, yeah. So that's partly um, why, yes, we need to plan. Mm-hmm. And everything, if you look at how we're leading Beulah and all this stuff, I mean, yeah, we have metrics, we have goals, we have all that stuff. But yeah. I, I hold it loosely because you really do have to have an ear to the Holy Spirit and how he's moving in your context. Yeah. What, it, what quickly jumped to mind, like when you described the church that's been there for a hundred years or 50 years, um, I'm where I'm sitting right now in Vancouver, up the road, there's two churches just like that. And one of the things that some, a mentor challenged me to do is like, go meet all the pastors around and you go into the building and you hear their struggles. And what I was struck by was their humility. Mm. Um, but also like not really a sense of fear. And then just incredible opportunities for partnership Mm. that were so different than my plans. Mm. And I'm still wrestling with it. Like I'm not, I got, I don't have advice to give. I'm still in this, like, it's like new and and I'm trying to learn and listen. But what I do feel for this moment, not just for Vancouver, but across Canada Mm. is this is the moment for partnership. Yeah. It's like, there are church, like even just think about the COVID moment. There are churches that have no idea how to quote unquote get online. Mm-hmm. And there are church planners that don't have a building, don't have a budget, but they could help them get online. Do you know what I mean? And like, yeah, that's yeah. like a tiny example of like, if we think kingdom in this moment, and I feel like this whole season of disruption has expedited the need for partnership. Yeah. And we're seeing yeah. it already. Like I, I heard about a few churches in a smaller town, like three of them got together to do online church together. How crazy is that? Where they're like, awesome. we can't pull this off on our own churches <laughs> yeah. that wouldn't have typically worked together. And yeah, there's, there's issues. And how do you follow up? Yeah, we can figure that stuff out. I just think mm. there's a moment for partnership, but it takes that kingdom perspective you describe. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, I, I love this. Danae Pierre, who leads the Surge Network in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, she's a part of the Redeemer crowd. Um, I forget what, in particular, how she serves with Redeemer city to city. But this is what she said. She was like, when you meet someone else in your city who has the same vision as you do, you need to actually celebrate that rather than mm. being competitive because if they have the same vision that you have, perhaps it's because we serve the same God and we're filled with the same Holy Spirit. 
Mm. And perhaps it's because God's doing something much greater than you. And that's what's so neat because Beulah has this vision to reach 1% of Edmonton. Well, Phil Kniesel, who's a friend here and he leads Hope City here. I mean, the guy has a, he didn't word it that way, but that's the same vision that God gave him. And instead of us being competitive, last Christmas Eve, uh, we were talking and I was like, hey, between the two of our churches, more than 1% of Edmonton. And just that's just two churches, right? But, wow. but, but between the two of us, more than 1% of Edmonton worship Jesus this Christmas Eve. Let's celebrate wow. that and let's pray, Lord Jesus, may we see even more, right? Yeah. As your kingdom comes and as his will is done. Oh, that gets me so excited. Uh, excited because I love Phil and I love yeah. that church, <laughs> knowing that you guys are friends. And I just think what an opportunity we have. And it doesn't mean doing everything together, but to actually mm. like be for each other and friends. I think that's one of the reasons why we want to do this podcast. Like I really hope that there's inspiration and practical and encouragement. But I think it, at, at its core is really trying to create a fabric of relationship, a shared mm. conversation so that we can, and not just share the wins together, but actually take the hits together too. Um, you know, because yeah, there's, there's both of those things. Hey, we're going to jump back into our conversation with Daniel in just a moment, but I want to take a second just to highlight the work of Compassion Canada. Compassion's mission is to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. And one of the reasons why I support the work of Compassion and what makes them so unique is their local church-based ministry model. 100% of Compassion's work is done in partnership with local churches in the 25 countries they work in. And Compassion's heart for the local church extends here to Canada too. They want to partner with local churches and work together to bring transformation to the world. They have years of experience equipping the Canadian church for missions. And so I want to encourage you to start a conversation with the team at Compassion and find out what it could look like for you and your church to begin a transformative missions partnership with Compassion Canada. You can learn more about it at compassion.ca. Okay, let's jump back into our conversation with Daniel M. Hey, I'd love to just chat a little bit. Talk about how Beulah is responding in the midst of COVID-19 um, in terms of mission, uh, mm. gatherings, but even in terms of like staff and how are you guys organizing in this time for effectiveness? Yeah. Yeah. There's, so our vision doesn't change. Our values don't change. It's uh, our, our ministry structure and our strategies. That's the stuff that's really changing. Mm. Uh, and and if, if you were to kind of see this, think about this image, and um, this is in my book, No Silver Bullets, and when I talk about strategy, vision, values, and all that stuff, right? So if you can kind of imagine a, a, a cloud at the top, which is vision, that's where God is leading us as a church. And this middle piece is strategy, all the stuff that we do to get to that. And then what is it that shapes what we do to get to where we need to be? It's our values, right? So mm -hmm. in the midst of this pandemic, where we're going doesn't change and our values and like how we do what we do to get to where we need to be doesn't change. So the how and the where don't change. What changes is the what. Wow, that's the so what helpful. of ministry. And when you think about strategy, it's two things. It's your discipleship pathway and your leadership pipeline. So those two pieces are, it's kind of like a double, it's a, it's a DNA. It's like you're a double helix where they're connected. They're, they're different things. They're very interconnected, but they're, they really are different things. So in this moment, what is your leadership pipeline? What is your discipleship pathway? Just questions we need to be asking ourselves because that stuff, that's the what, so in light of this pandemic, yeah, we've reorganized and we've pivoted and we've, you know, mentioned all the words, all the hot topic words, the new normal, there's all that side of everything that's going on, right? But we really, we, because of, and, and we're really grateful and we really do take it a week at a time with our giving, but we're grateful for the generosity of our church. So, so we're really taking at it from the perspective of pivoting to, to reorganize and reassign staff members. I mean, we want to care for our team as much as we can uh, in light of all this. So we're cutting back ministry expenses and we're, I mean, no one's sitting idle, but we're really trying to figure out how do we reorganize and reassign. So we've done this in uh, a few different ways. W one way is we actually split our adult ministries team into care and impact as one department and groups as another one. 
mm. care and impact in groups as separate. Uh, and then, yeah, we have our communications, our kids, our youth, our, uh, all the other kind of typical departments that you would have. But one of the reasons we did that is because we outlined our strategy from a uh, really a perspective of what is the blizzard, what is the winter, and what is a possible little ice age. And that's all coming from an incredible article from Andy Crouch. Mm. So when this first hit, we were in a blizzard, a blizzard, yeah. and there was a lot of people doing the same things. So we did a six, we had a six week strategy from mid March to the end of April for this is our blizzard strategy. This is how decisions are being made. And this is what we're doing. And it was very, very simple. If you were to imagine a quadrant, it was air war and ground war weekends and midweek. So we structured everything around that, those quadrants and assigned owners around that. Air war being all the stuff we're projecting out. So services and, you know, online, social media, all that stuff. And ground war being phone calls. And so we mobilized our, our, our groups and our staff and everyone and volunteers to call everyone in the church. And so there's a lot of ground war stuff and there's air war stuff, both for the weekends and the midweek. Now that the blizzard is done and we're getting a little bit of a better picture as to what ministry is going to look like moving forward. Uh, we've outlined a ministry strategy from May to August, mm. right? And, and we're really, instead of planning a year at a time, we're really going three months at a time, budgeting for that and planning ministry three months at a time, because yeah, let's say we get back together in September. I mean, who knows, right? But let's say we're allowed to gather back together in September. I doubt we can gather thousands of people together in September. Right. Maybe right. it's 50, maybe it's 70, but it's not going to be our services altogether. So instead of planning for that with those contingencies, we're really just planning for no gatherings. Maybe we'll meet before that, but no gatherings generally. And this is what our strategy is. And it outlines in these three ways, engagement, community, and compassion. Mm. Everything falls under engagement, community, and compassion. So as it relates to the engagement side, we're thinking, okay, what is what do our weekends look like that we can still be and, and here are our weekends. Our weekends are distinctly Edmonton. Now hmm. people out we're so we're distinctly measuring um, local and provincial views rather than mixing that all together with midweek and everywhere else around the world and all. We're not trying to compete against every other church. That's not the thing. We're really focusing our content in and around Edmonton and reaching Edmonton mm. and making our content shareable for Edmonton and those living here. So we're really focusing in and around those engaging online experiences and our communications, not, not just being one way, but making sure that there's interactivity, engagement, and interaction between the two ways. Yeah. And then the third piece around that engagement is ministry grid, and, and we're using that platform to do leadership development and actually really seeing this as an opportunity to get all of our onboarding leadership training filmed, our membership class, baptism, dedication, all of these classes, these major classes, getting them all filmed so that mm. it's just, it's ready to go. So that's that's the whole reassigning piece. So that's the engagement side. I don't know if you want me to go into community and compassion, but that's the engagement give, side of it. Give me like the 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 just Cole's notes on the other two, because it, it honestly, it's so helpful to hear a framework. Mm. Um, I think a lot of people, whether their framework would be the same to have a framework to work from, to contrast with, um, it's so helpful. And so, yeah, just walk us through the other two. Yeah, so community just quickly is increasing the number of new people connected, but also reconnecting those who haven't gone digital because we are a multi-generational church. So being aware of that, uh, working on our discipleship pathway our off, and really doing an initiative around offline resourcing, knowing that we're all on our screens quite a bit. So engaging people in community. And the compassion side is really making sure that there is congregational care and pastoral yeah. care and that we're doing these seminars on mental health and financial needs and everything else around care. Uh, we have a huge emphasis on neighboring. So yes, we're going to target our city and impact is a huge component in the compassion side and us uh, being able to find out, okay, what are ways that we can serve high impact opportunities to serve Edmonton and to serve and be salt and light here. But we're really mobilizing our congregation to neighbor well and to evangelize and share mm -hmm. their story and really focus in and around the neighboring that way so that those relationships are stronger. Because regardless of when we can open up, I know even if you look at some of the other provinces and states opening up, there's a sense of you can get together in smaller groups. So how do we neighbor in light of that? Because mm. you don't need to convince people that community is important. I don't know how many conversations now I've had 
in my cul-de-sac with my neighbors because everyone just is desire. And I'm like, I got to go, but this, it's like, this guy hasn't talked to anyone. Yeah. (laughs) And it's that lingering. Yes. You notice that you run into each other four or five or six feet apart, whatever it is. And then there's that kind of like lingering, like, oh, they're, they're really chatting. There's this longing for connection. Yes. And it is a real moment where you begin to, it's almost like the first couple of weeks there was hesitation. It was almost like a Mm. fear of people because you're making sense of what does it mean to distance? And now there's Mm -hmm. this unique, I don't know if this has happened in Edmonton, but at 7 p.m. in Vancouver, everyone gets out and cheers for healthcare workers and frontline workers. It's really cool. So the weirdest thing Mm. is like the first time I went out with my kids and no one's out there. And now across the way, people are singing songs. We're meeting people. I've met more neighbors just in this 15 minute window at 7 p.m. than ever before. It's such a unique gift of the season, this ability to connect. And I know you're passionate about evangelism. I know it's connected to your story all the way back to being at UBC. what do you sense and see are some of the, maybe the evangelistic moment we're in and whether it's practical what you're doing at Bueller or just what you're sensing as on like a peer to peer level, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, man, it's so incredible to think about how we can empower our congregation to evangelize. And we really are in a unique moment. And, and I love what Tim Keller said. He was reflecting back on 9-11 and he was like, we had 25% less finances and 25% more people. <laughs> and I really do believe there's this moment right now that we are living in where people may have never engaged in a church service or been engaged in that manner, yet they are willing to do so now. Now, here's this is American research, but uh, it's some research that came out of the Billy Graham Center a couple of years ago. And, and it was fascinating because they have, they interviewed non-Christians, right? So they didn't interv- interview Christians' opinions on, on non-Christians. They interviewed non-Christians. And here's what they found. They found that about 70 to 80% of those surveyed, non-Christians surveyed, said if their friend was genuine about their faith, they would be willing to engage in a spiritual conversation with them. Mm. If their friend was in, is and and yet yet I think in our media and our mindset we think no actually no one wants to do that no one's interested and it's the 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 Richard Dawkins and you know the, the all the you know the adamantly people speaking out against Christianity those are the that's what all that's what the census is around everyone around us yet in that uh, in that research they found out I think that was under two percent of people actually had that negative view, harsh view toward Christians. Mm. So, and here's how it was, you know, research aside, context aside, here's how it really does make sense. Let's say you had a neighbor that just moved in, right? And you were connecting with them and they were from India and they didn't care anything about hockey. All they loved was cricket, <laughs> right? And they they just love cricket because they just moved from India. And you guys developed a friendship and, and you're connecting and you're sharing meals and you really, it really was a friendship that was developed and the Canucks or the Oilers or whoever made it to the Stanley cup finals or the playoffs. And you are so excited about it. And you were talking to your friend and you were talking to them about hockey and they literally couldn't care like even a little bit about hockey because they love cricket because of your friendship. Wouldn't they actually be willing to engage in a conversation with you about mm-hmm. hockey? Wouldn't they actually ask questions about it and be willing to watch a game with you if you were that passionate about it and if you guys were actually friends? Now, if you talked about hockey every single time you met together and you didn't talk about anything else, yeah, who would want to be your friend anyway, (laughs) right? But in that situation, if you really did have a genuine friendship, well, they would want to engage in a conversation with you. And this is actually true for spiritual conversations as well. If we in this opportune moment, right, can actually equip our congregation to naturally have conversations about their spiritual life and, and about their soul and about the gospel and about what they, what they learned, what they talked about on the weekend or what they learned on the weekend, right? Just very natural ways to talk about spiritual matters. If we equipped our entire congregation to do that, imagine not only the number of spiritual conversations that'll surge, but also those who come to know Christ in this moment. Mm. I just think we're afraid as Canadians to offend yeah, but I don't think we actually have to worry about offending if we're first neighboring well. Hmm. If you're not neighboring, <laughs> yes, you will offend. But if you are neighboring well, then 
I don't think we have to be afraid of that because people are going to want to have those conversations. Wow. Wouldn't that be amazing if the church was famous for neighboring well in this season? <laughs> yeah. You know, even like I'm so, I, I beat myself up for not hitting my evangelism bar sometimes, mm. but I just love what you're saying. Like, man, if we made the bar neighboring well, how that would set the stage for the rest. I just love that. Yeah. appreciate that so much. I know that comes from a place of integrity for you. And mm. um, oh, thanks for sharing that. I really, really appreciate that. Yeah. And then we um, got to throw our objectives away, our timeline away, because sometimes neighboring takes yeah. a long time. Right. Yeah. So there is that sense of, and I, that's why I love what uh, Dave and John Ferguson talk about uh, their bless framework from community Christian begin mm-hmm. with prayer, listen, eat, serve, and story. That's a paradigm that we have at Beulah, that we really leverage at Beulah to normalize evangelism and to normalize neighboring, to make mm-hmm. that an easy thing to do. So if, if we're all living in that manner, begin with prayer, listen, eat, serve, and story, then we can trust the Holy Spirit in those times to give us the words to say and to prepare their hearts as well. So there's that daily intentionality toward neighboring. Oh, that's so helpful. Mm -hmm. Anything practically that Abul has done in this time uh, going online in the, in the area of evangelism, any tools or opportunities you guys have created for your congregation? Yeah. I mean, we love alpha. We absolutely love alpha. And I mean, it's last year, I think we had what 800 people participate in alpha through all our classes and, and I mean, it's just, there's this invitational culture that we have. So, um, which props to Angela Favor. I mean, she is the queen. <laughs> she's our evangelism pastor, love her to death. And she's the one that's really making this happen with all of her volunteers and leaders. So I'm not taking any credit from this. It's fully her and her team and our incredible staff culture, but, but in our church culture. But what's cool is, I mean, she is mobilized, like literally mobilized alpha class, lots of different alpha classes led by different leaders. All, I mean, she could have just done one and just put it <laughs> online, right? She's done all because she's wanting to mobilize volunteers and uh, empower people to equip their friends or sh- invite invite their friends. And so it's a lot of stuff has been doing, they've been doing around that. And then there's this life conversations study uh, that's come out of that too, that I, I know you're familiar with. So um, that's where I think you're a part of it, right? No, tell me about it. I don't know if I even know about it. <laughs> life conversations. What's, what's yeah. the life conversations? <laughs> So it's what just is this, that? It's this three part. It's this three part series, kind of like a pre alpha, uh, to to normalize some of that. So oh oh, life shared. Oh life shared. Life shared. Sorry, man. I'm no no. It's it's fine. I'm just the host of it. It's totally <laughs> fine. Exactly. Yeah. You were. I was being dead serious, dude. I thought you were like you were like. I think I'm yeah, like winding like, you up. But I'm, I'm like ninety nine percent sure that you are a part of. <laughs> You've heard of that, man. It's like me being like, yeah, you know, this book I read that was really good. Uh, something about like lies we believe. I don't know. <laughs> oh, so funny. <laughs> oh, you're awesome. I appreciate that a ton. Um, okay. Just a few more questions okay, with okay. our time together. Um, I didn't brief you on this at all. So if this, if there's no thought, it's totally okay. But as you look at the next, I mean, just like the horizon of the church in Canada, not just mm. short term, but beyond the pandemic, um, Succession is one of the things that we talked about. What do you think are the big conversations, the big, the big things that the church in Canada are going to wrestle with in the next decade? Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So I think succession is going to be a driving. I mean, we're just going to see it over and over again. We're going to see success stories and failure stories. It's interesting because I think pre-COVID. I would have leaned more toward the end of, hey, the big are going to get bigger. Uh, but I, but I like that large churches are going to get larger. And it's those medium-sized churches that are likely going to struggle the most. That's what I would have said. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have said that the smaller churches or church plants or more niche-focused churches wouldn't thrive. I actually think they can and will and always will because they are um it's new on the one hand but also you're heavily focused and targeted so there's agility and adaptability that is strong for church plants and why i love new churches and new campuses because there's so much that you can change and innovate and experiment with and reach the lost in and through those i would have said all of that pre-covid i actually have no idea how things are going to land after this because 
I think on the one end, one hand, there's going to be a lot of churches that actually die out of all this because they were small and they were struggling anyway. And with the giving and the economy and all that stuff, I think they're just going to shut down and they're, or they're not going to be, or there it's going to be three or four or five months of not meeting and they're not going to be able to open up again. So sadly, sadly, I think that's going to be a reality, but what happens out of that? Mm. Are we actually going to see a rise of house churches? Are we actually going to see um, people flock to the churches that have done online church well? And are we going to see larger churches get even larger because of that? Or are we going to see large church empty out and large churches emptied out because people don't want to be in mass gatherings anymore? So I literally just, I have no idea. But if after all this is said and done, man, I pray desperately that we would see a greater measure of collaboration Mm. happening and that we would see people, and this is how we're working toward how we are discipling our church and our parents, that we would see people so own their spiritual growth and their life as a follower of Christ that when we gather together, it really is more of a celebration than it is a feeding. Mm. Because I think there's a lot of people who kind of consumeristically wait for Sunday to be fed and to be nourished instead of having been fed and having been nourished come with a posture to give rather than take. So, man, I do pray that together as we move beyond all this, that we would have the greatest celebrations and the greatest parties that the world has ever known because i mean that's i mean we are celebrating the, the 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 most incredible thing right jesus having come to give us new life and abundant life in the midst of death and sorrow and pain and sickness and the abundant life that he promises not only eternally but right now and i and i really do hope and pray that the church becomes known for that that it's not the dead church but it's the alive church yeah oh i love that Thank you so much for sharing that and for even sharing the things you're wrestling with, you know, yeah, yeah. and I hadn't, I hadn't thought about the effect of COVID. I think I would have been saying the same thing pre COVID. Like I wondered if that the middle class size church, you know, mm-hmm. would, but, but I do think this totally shifts the game. And um, I think it's fun to wonder what's yeah. going to be on the other side. <laughs> but I think the gift of this season is actually realizing how little we know. Hey, like yeah. just to oh, find yeah. that self. It's like, and you talked about that so well in your own story, like just to mm. relinquish control. And mm. man, I want to, before I let you go chat about your most recent book, because I think it's just such a compelling theme mm. uh, for, for anyone in our world, but especially for pastors, it's like the big idea is this, you, you kind of, the title's really, really catchy. You are what you do in six other lives, but work life and love. And it's really about identity and just what propelled you to write this book? Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't set out to write a book on this or identity or anything it ended up actually ended up turning into. All I did was I came across research about the gig economy and how, I mean, the gig economy is those who are self-employed in a part-time or full-time capacity, getting paid for their time, skills, possessions, and expertise, right? So it's this side hustle culture. So that's all it was. And I was like, man, this side hustle culture is has so rapidly risen to the surface, both as a result of apps like Uber and you know Airbnb and Skip Editions and all that stuff, but also it was existing before because every time you get a haircut or you get your lawn mowed or you hire a contractor, I mean, that's the gig economy as well, this self-employment side of things. So literally I was like, what is this doing? Like, surely it's not just me noticing this. Yeah. And then I came across research in the US and Canada and the UK and Australia, about 30 to 40% of each of these congregate, uh, not congregations, countries workforce is a part of the gig economy, right? So about 30 to 40% of the wow. workforce. And I was like, wait, if 30 to 40% of Canadians are a part of the gig economy, funding the gig economy, how much greater is the percentage of those who are benefiting from the gig economy? Right. So, so 30 to 40% are, sorry, working in the gig economy. The yeah. rest were funding it, right? Because yeah. we buy stuff off of Facebook Marketplace and we hire contractors sure. and, and we're funding this. So I was like, what is this doing to our souls? And why hmm. is this so rapidly increased? Because in the last five years, about 68% of all gig workers surveyed joined the gig economy in the last five years. So as I dug into it even more, here's the core lie that came up. 
The gig economy promises a life of freedom and flexibility or a life of control. Mm-hmm. And the gig economy, and this is the lie from the Garden of Eden, right? I mean, it is, it is, it is so deceptively promising a life of ultimate freedom and flexibility and control. And it's like, hey, the only reason you're not like on vacation or you don't have that Tesla or you don't do this because you're not hustling enough. Right. So stop, you know, get off your couch, stop binging Netflix and go hustle. And then you can get that life that you want. And that it's a life of control that the gig economy promises. So as I dug into that more, I was like, oh my goodness, wait a second. If that's the core lie, how are we all in how are we all trying to achieve that life of control? And that's how the seven lies came about. Because some of us are trying to achieve that life of control by basing our identity around all that we do. Hmm. Others are trying to get that life of control by trying to build a life of experiences or through knowledge or through our children. So that's how the, it, it links with the, the lies. Wow. I think this is such an important theme and book, both for pastors for two reasons. One mm-hmm. is I think this is equipping us with a language. I think this is like a key to grabbing the hearts of a generation who are far from God. Yeah. I think yeah. what you're like, this is a, a roadmap for a vernacular to speak mm. to the hearts. And I know that you structured each, each chapter really uniquely that it's like the majority of it is really just unpacking these lies. Like you are yeah. what you do, or you are what you know, you are who you raise, like all mm. that stuff. And then, and then, you know, a ways the way in coming and giving that gospel response. I just think yes. it's like, I plan just to, you know, I plan to sort of use this as a sermon series oh, perfect. Um, <laughs> in, in, in evangelistic kind of space, because I just think it so speaks to this culture. But I also think it's an important read for pastors because hmm. um, I struggle with all of these lies. Yeah. Like yeah, it's not too. just an out there. It's like a right here. Like I can't, I struggle to divorce my identity from the effectiveness of the things that I do. Yeah. And I just would love just to end by just you, you speak in a word, whether it's just your own journey or to pastors like me who are struggling to, especially in the midst of all going on, like, I feel like yeah. I'm not in control and uh, there's a real war going on mm. side. Yeah. Yeah. So I agree with you in the sense that I wrestle with all these lies as well. And I think to go to the Sermon on the Mount, and that's actually seminary. I did, I started off at Regent. I, didn't, I graduated from Fuller, but I started off at Regent and Daryl Johnson's Sermon on the Mount course was my very first course in seminary. Wow. And I just fell in love with that that sermon. And actually, that's why my son's name is Makarios, because mm. that means blessed. And it's, wow. that for, it's in the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the blessed are. So that's why his name is Makarios, because I just love that. But to go back to the Sermon on the Mount, right? And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus masterfully says, you've heard it was said, but now I say to you. You've heard it was said, but now I say to you. And I just want to walk through the lies and share the gospel truth on the other side, because I know we all sh- struggle with one or more of these, right? So this is this is the Jesus method to cultural apologetics. It's the Jesus method, I think, to evangelism these days as well. And here's here, here it is. You've heard it was said that you are what you do, but I say to you, you're a child of God. You have heard it was said that you are what you experience, but I say to you, you are a new creation. You have heard it was said that you are who you know, but I say to you, you are known by our loving Savior, Jesus. You have heard it was said that you are what you own, but I say to you, you are complete in Jesus. You've heard it was said you are who you raise, but I say to you, you and your children are God's masterpiece. And lastly, you have heard it was said that you are your past and all, I don't know. I mean, I think we've all struggled with that part of it, but I say to you, you are free from all condemnation in Christ Jesus. So let's walk in the truth, the truth of our identity and the freedom that we have because of all that, not because of what we've done, but because of all that Jesus has done for us. And regardless of how big your church is and what you do or what you don't do in life, None of that matters. None of that matters because Jesus has finished the work and we have full inheritance, regardless of any of that. We have full inheritance because of his work, not ours. So let's rest in that. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being with us today, Daniel. 
Well, huge thank you, Daniel, for taking time to share with us today. Really appreciated the conversation we had together. And we've got highlights from this interview available on our blog, as well as our Instagram and YouTube channels. If you wanna see it with video, you can find it there. And if you didn't already know this, Daniel M is a content creating machine who's always pumping out great content. So I quickly wanna highlight his podcast, The New Church's Q&A Podcast. So multiple times a week, himself, Ed Stetzer, and Todd Atkins release short episodes where they answer questions about church planting, multi-site, multiplication, leadership development, those types of things. And we've got links to that podcast, all of his books, and more in the show notes on our blog at ccln.ca. We are 14 episodes into this new season, and what's been most fun for myself and the team is seeing this podcast reach more and more people each week. And I guess the reason why that's happening is because people like you have been sharing it with their friends. And so if you haven't already, would you give us a quick review on whatever platform you're currently on? And if this conversation today helped you, would you share with a friend who might want to jump in on the conversation with us? Next week, we've got Kim Moran on the podcast. Her church that she leads along with her husband, Clark, is Abbotsford Pentecostal Assembly. And this is a church that's been through massive transition. I think why their story and what they've learned is so important because they've taken a church with a rich history that's gone through lots of ups and downs and they've led it over the last couple of years in a very real revitalization work. So we have lots to learn from them. And I love the conversation about life and leadership with Kim. Excited for you to hear that. In the midst of this global pandemic, so much has changed and a lot has changed in the world of education. It's shifted dramatically and our partners at Briarcrest have a adapted their programs so that they can continue to serve emerging leaders like they have been for the last 85 years. Every year, hundreds of young adults from Canada and around the world have chosen Briarcrest because there they find this intentional discipleship community that helps them deepen their faith and prepare them for a lifetime and ministry. And so to find out more about their programs, go ahead and check out briarcrestcollege.ca.